Chapter Thirty Nine of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Horse Leeches. The honor of representing the borough of Percycross in Parliament was very great, and Sir Thomas, no doubt, did enjoy it after a fashion. But it was by no means an unalloyed pleasure. While he was still in bed with his broken arm at the Percy Standard, many applications for money had been made to him. This man wanted a sovereign, that man a five-pound note, and some poor starving wretch half a crown, and they all came to him with notes from Trigger, or messages from Spicer or Spiveycomb, to the effect that as the election was now over, the money ought to be given. The landlord of the Percy Standard was on such occasions very hard upon him. It really will do good, Sir Thomas. It is wanted, Sir Thomas. It will make a good feeling in the town, Sir Thomas, and we don't know how soon we may have to go to work again. Sir Thomas was too weak in health to refuse. He gave the sovereigns, the half-pound notes, and the half-crowns, and hurried back home as quickly as he was able. But things were almost worse with him at home than at Percycross. The real horse-leeches felt that they could hardly get a good hold of him while he was lying at the Percycross Inn. Attacks by letter were, they well knew, more fatal than those made personally, and they waited. The first that came was from Mr. Pabsby, Mr. Pabsby had at last seen his way clear, and had voted for Underwood and Westmacott, absolutely throwing away his vote as far as the cause was concerned. But Mr. Pabsby had quarreled with Griffinbottom, who once, when pressed hard for some favors, had answered the reverend gentleman somewhat roughly. "'You may go and be damned,' said Mr. Griffinbottom in his wrath, and tell everybody in Percycross that I said so. Mr. Pabsby had smiled, had gone away, and had now voted for Mr. Westmacott. Mr. Pabsby was indeed a horse-leech of the severest kind. There had been some outward show of reconciliation between Griffinbottom and Pabsby, but Pabsby had at last voted for Underwood and Westmacott. Sir Thomas had not been home two days before he received a letter from Mr. Pabsby. It had been with infinite satisfaction, so Mr. Pabsby now said, that he had at length seen his way clearly, and found himself able to support his friend Sir Thomas. And he believed that he might take upon himself to say that when he once had seen his way clearly, he had put his shoulder to the wheel gallantly. In fact, it was to be inferred from the contents of Mr. Pabsby's letter that Sir Thomas's return had been due altogether to Mr. Pabsby's flock, who had, so said Mr. Pabsby, been guided in the matter altogether by his advice. Then he sent a list of his hearers, who had voted for Sir Thomas. From this the slight change of subject needed to bring him to the new chapel which he was building, and his desire that Sir Thomas should head the subscription list in so good a cause, was easy enough. 
It might be difficult to say in what Mr. Pabsby's strength lay, but it certainly was the case that the letter was so written as to defy neglect and almost to defy refusal. Such is the power of horse-leeches. Sir Thomas sent Mr. Pabsby a check for twenty pounds, and received Mr. Pabsby's acknowledgment, thanking him for his first subscription. The thanks were not very cordial, and it was evident that Mr. Pabsby had expected a good deal more than twenty pounds in return for all that he had done. Mr. Pabsby was simply the first. Before Christmas had come, it seemed to Sir Thomas, that there was not a place of divine worship in the whole of Percycross that was not falling to the ground in ruins. He had not observed it when he was there, but now it appeared that funds were wanted for almost every such edifice in the borough, and the schools were in a most destitute condition. He was informed that the sitting member had always subscribed to all the schools, and that if he did not continue such subscription, the children would literally be robbed of their education. One gentleman, whose name he did not even remember to have heard, simply suggested to him that he would, as a matter of course, continue to give the fifty pounds towards the general Christmas collection on behalf of the old women of the borough. The sitting members had given it time out of mind. Mr. Bootylands had a political project of his own, which in fact, if carried out, would amount to a prohibition on the import of French boots, and suggested that Sir Thomas should bring in a bill to that effect on the meeting of Parliament. If Sir Thomas would not object to the trouble of visiting Amiens, Lille, Beauvais, and three or four other French towns, which Mr. Bootylands mentioned, he would be able to ascertain how much injury had been done to Percycross by the Cobden Treaty. Mr. Spiveycomb had his own ideas about Italian rags, Mr. Spiveycomb being in the paper line, and wrote a very long letter to Sir Thomas, praying the member to make himself master of a subject so vitally important to the borough which he represented. Mr. Spicer also communicated to him the astounding fact that some high official connected with the army was undoubtedly misbehaving himself in regard to mustard for the troops. The mustard contracts were not open as they should be open. The mustard was all supplied by a London house, and Mr. Spicer was very anxious that Sir Thomas should move for a committee to inquire of the members of the London firm as to the manner in which the contracts were obtained by them. Mr. Spicer was disposed to think that this was the most important matter that would be brought forward in the next session of Parliament. Mr. Pabsby had got his check before the other applications were received, but when they came in shoals Sir Thomas thought that it might be well to refer them to Mr. Trigger for advice. Sir Thomas had not loved Griffinbottom during the election, and was not inclined to ask his colleague for counsel. Griffinbottom had obtained a name for liberality in Percycross, and had shown symptoms, so thought Sir Thomas, of an intention to use his reputation as a means of throwing off further burdens from his own shoulders. I have spent a treasure in the borough. Let my colleague begin now. 
words spoken by Mr. Griffinbottom in that strain had been repeated to Sir Thomas, and after many such words Sir Thomas could not go to Mr. Griffinbottom for advice as to what he should give or refuse to give. He doubted whether better reliance could be placed on Mr. Trigger, but to some one he must go for direction. Were he once to let it be known in Percycross that demands made would be satisfied, he might sign checks to the extent of his whole fortune during his first session. He did write to Mr. Trigger, enclosing the various Percycross applications, and Mr. Trigger duly replied to him. Mr. Trigger regretted that money had been given to Mr. Pabsby. Mr. Pabsby had been of no use, and could be of no use. Mr. Griffinbottom, who knew the borough better than anyone else, had understood this well, when on one occasion he had been a little short with Mr. Pabsby. Sir Thomas ought not to have sent that check to Mr. Pabsby. The sending it would do infinite harm, and cause dissensions in the borough, which might require a considerable expenditure to set right. As to the other clerical demands, it seemed to Sir Thomas that Mr. Trigger was of opinion that they should all be gratified. He had, in fact, sent his money to the only person in Percycross who ought not to have received money. The fifty pounds for the old women was a matter of course, and would not be begrudged, as it was the only payment which was absolutely annual. In regard to the schools, Sir Thomas could do what he pleased, but the sitting member had always been liberal to the schools. Schools were things to which sitting members were, no doubt, expected to subscribe. As to the question of French boots, Mr. Trigger thought that there was something in it, and said that if Sir Thomas could devote his Christmas holidays to getting up the subject in Lille and Amiens, it would have a good effect in the borough, and show that he was in earnest. This might be the more desirable, as there was no knowing as yet what might be done about the petition. There no doubt was a strong feeling in the borough as to the Cobden Treaty, and Sir Thomas would probably feel it to be his duty to get the question up in regard to the mustard. Mr. Trigger suggested that, though there was probably nothing in it, it might be as well to ask the Secretary at War a question or two on the subject. Mr. Spicer was, no doubt, a moving man in Percycross. Sir Thomas could at any rate promise that he would ask such questions as Mr. Spicer certainly had friends who might be conducive to the withdrawal of the petition. Sir Thomas could at any rate put himself into correspondence with the War Office. Mr. Trigger also thought that Sir Thomas might judiciously study the subject of Italian rags in reference to the great paper trade of the country. No doubt the manufacture of paper was a growing business at Percycross. Mr. Trigger returned all the applications, and ended his letter by hinting that the checks might as well be sent at once. Mr. Trigger thought that a little money about the borough would do good at the present moment. It need hardly be said that this view of things was not pleasant to the sitting member, who was still confined to his house at Fulham by an arm broken in the cause. Sir Thomas had at once sent the fifty pounds toward the Christmas festivities for the poor of the borough, 
and had declared his purpose of considering the other matters. Then had come a further letter from Mr. Trigger, announcing his journey to London, and Mr. Trigger and Sir Thomas had their first meeting after the election, immediately upon Mr. Neefit's departure from the chambers. "'And is it to be?' asked Stem, as soon as he had closed the door behind Mr. Trigger's back. "'Is what to be?' "'Them petitions, Sir Thomas.' "'Petitions costs a deal of money, they tell me, Sir Thomas.' Sir Thomas winced. "'I suppose you must go on now, as your hand is in,' continued Stem. "'I don't know that at all,' said Sir Thomas. "'You'll find as you must. There ain't no way out of it. Not now, as you are the sitting member.' "'I am not going to ruin myself, Stem, for the sake of a seat in Parliament.' "'I don't know how that may be, Sir Thomas. I hope not, Sir Thomas. But I don't see how you're not to go on now, Sir Thomas. If it wasn't for petitions, one wouldn't mind.' "'There must be petitions, of course, and if there be good cause for them, they should succeed.' "'No doubt, Sir Thomas. They say the bribery at Percy Cross was tremendous, but I suppose it was on the other side?' If it was on our side, Stem, it was not so with my knowledge. I did all I could to prevent it. I spoke against it whenever I opened my mouth. I would not have given a shilling for a single vote, though it would have got me the election. But they were not all that way, Sir Thomas, was they? How can I tell? No, I know that they were not. I fear they were not. I cannot say that money was given, but I fear it. "'You must go on now, Sir Thomas, anyway,' said Stem, with a groan that was not reassuring. "'I wish I had never heard the name of Percy Cross,' said Sir Thomas. "'I dare say,' replied Stem. "'I went there determined to keep my hands clean.' "'When one puts one's hands into other people's business, they won't come out clean.' said the judicious Stem. But you must go on with it now anyway, Sir Thomas. I don't know what I shall do, said the unhappy member. On the next morning there came another application from Percycross. The postmaster in that town had died suddenly, and the competitors for the situation, which was worth about a hundred and fifty pounds per annum, were very numerous. There was a certain Mr. O'Blather, only known in Percycross as cousin to one Mrs. Givantake, the wife of a liberal solicitor in the borough. Of Mr. O'Blather, the worst that could be said was that at the age of forty he had no income on which to support himself. Mrs. Givantake was attached to her cousin, and Mr. Givantake had become sensible of a burden that the vacant office was just the thing for him, appeared at a glance to all his friends. Mrs. Givantake, in her energy on the subject, expressed an opinion that the whole cabinet should be impeached if the just claims of Mr. O'Blather were not conceded. But it was felt that the justice of the claims would not prevail without personal interest. The Liberal Party was in power, an application hot and instant was made to Mr. Westmacott. Mr. Westmacott was happy enough to have his answer ready. The Treasury had nothing to do with the matter. It was a post-office concern, 
and he, simply as the late liberal member and last liberal candidate for the borough, was not entitled to intrude, even in a matter of patronage, upon the postmaster-general with whom he was not acquainted. But Mr. Westmacott was malicious as well as secure. He added a postscript to his letter, in which he said that he believed the present sitting member, Sir Thomas Underwood, was intimately acquainted with the noble lord who presided at the post-office. There were various interests at Percy Cross moved, brought together, weighed against each other, and balanced to a grain, and finally dovetailed. If Sir Thomas Underwood would prevail on Lord Blank to appoint Mr. O'Blather to the vacant office, then all the give-and-take influence at Percy Cross should be used towards the withdrawal of the petition. Such was the communication now made to Sir Thomas by a gentleman who signed his name as Peter Piper, and who professed himself authorized to act on behalf of Mr. Givantake. Sir Thomas's answer was as follows. Southampton Buildings, December 31, 1860-blank. Dear Sir, I can have nothing to do with Mr. O'Blather and the post office at Percy Cross. I am your obedient servant, Thomas Underwood. Mr. Peter Piper, Post Office, Percy Cross. Christmas had passed, and had passed uncomfortably enough at Popham Villa, in which retreat neither of the three young ladies was at present very happy, when Sir Thomas was invited by Mr. Trigger to take further steps with reference to the petitions. It was thought necessary that there should be a meeting in the conservative interest, and it was suggested that this meeting should take place in Sir Thomas's chambers. Mr. Trigger, in making the proposition, seemed to imply that a great favor was thereby conferred on Sir Thomas, as that country is supposed to be most honored which is selected as the meeting ground for plenipotentiaries when some important international point requires to be settled. Sir Thomas could not see the arrangement in that light, and would have shuffled out of the honor had it been possible. But it was not possible. At this period of the year Mr. Griffinbottom had no house in town, and Mr. Trigger explained that it was inexpedient that such meetings should take place at hotels. There was no place as fitting as a lawyer's chambers. Sir Thomas, who regarded as a desecration the entrance of one such man as Mr. Trigger into his private room, and who was particularly anxious not to fall into any intimacy with Mr. Griffinbottom, was driven to consent, and at one o'clock on the twenty-ninth Stem was forced to admit the deputation. The deputation from Percy Cross consisted of Mr. Trigger, Mr. Spicer, and Mr. Pyle, but with them came also the senior sitting member. At first they were all very grave, and Sir Thomas asked them indiscreetly whether they would take a glass of sherry. Pyle and Spicer immediately acceded to this proposition, and sherry was perhaps efficacious in bringing about speedy conversation. "'Well, Underwood,' said Mr. Griffinbottom, "'it seems that after all we are to have these damn petitions.' Sir Thomas lifted his left foot on his right knee and nursed his leg, but said nothing. On one point he was resolved, 
nothing on earth should induce him to call his colleague Griffinbottom. "'No doubt about that, Mr. Griffinbottom,' said Mr. Pyle. "'That is, unless we can make Westmacott right. T'other chap wouldn't be of much account.' "'Mr. Pyle, you're going a little too fast,' said Trigger. "'No, I ain't,' said Mr. Pyle. But for the moment he allowed himself to be silenced. "'We don't like the looks of it at Percy Cross,' said Mr. Spicer. "'And why don't we like the looks of it?' asked Sir Thomas. "'I don't know what your idea of pleasure is,' said Mr. Griffinbottom, "'but I don't take delight in spending money for nothing. I have spent enough, I can tell you, and I don't mean to spend much more. My seat was as safe as the church.' "'But they have petitioned against that as well as mine,' said Sir Thomas. "'Yes, they have. And now what's to be done?' I don't know whether Sir Thomas is willing to take the whole cost of the defense upon himself, said Mr. Trigger, pouring out for himself a second glass of sherry. No, I am not, said Sir Thomas, whereupon there was a pause during which Pyle and Spicer also took second glasses of sherry. Why should I pay the cost of defending Mr. Griffinbottom's seat? Why should I pay it, said Griffinbottom? My seat was safe enough. The fact is, if money was paid, as to which I know nothing, it was paid to get the second seat. Everybody knows that. Why should anyone have paid money for me? I was safe. I never have any difficulty. Everybody knows that. I could come in for Percy Cross twenty times running without buying a vote. Isn't that true, Trigger? I believe you could, Mr. Griffinbottom. Of course I could. Look here, Underwood. I beg your pardon for one moment, Mr. Griffinbottom, said Sir Thomas. Will you tell me, Mr. Trigger, whether votes were bought on my behalf? Mr. Trigger smiled and put his head on one side, but made no answer. I wish I might be allowed to hear the truth, continued Sir Thomas. Whereupon Spicer grinned, and Mr. Pyle looked as though he were about to be sick. How was it that a set of gentlemen who generally knew their business so well as did the political leaders at Percycross had got themselves into the same boat with a man silly enough to ask such a question as that? "'I shan't spend money,' said Griffinbottom. "'It's out of the question. They can't touch me. I spent my money, and I got my article.' If others want the article, they must spend theirs. Mr. Trigger thought it might be as well to change the subject for a moment, or at any rate to pass on to another clause of the same bill. "'I was very sorry, Sir Thomas,' said he, "'that you wrote that letter to Mr. Givantake.' "'I wrote no letter to Mr. Givantake. A man named Piper addressed me.' "'Well, well, well, that's the same thing.' It was give and take, though of course he isn't going to sign his name to everything. If you could just have written a line to your friend, the Postmaster General, I really think we could have squared it all. I wouldn't have made a request so improper for all Percycross, said Sir Thomas. Patronage is open to everybody, suggested Mr. Griffinbottom. These sorts of favors are asked every day, said Trigger. We live in a free country, said Spicer. 
Give and take is a damn scoundrel all the same, said Mr. Pyle, and as to his wife's Irish cousin, I should be very sorry to leave my letters in his hands. It wouldn't have come off, Mr. Pyle, said Trigger, but the request might have been made. If Sir Thomas will allow me to say as much, the request ought to have been made. I will allow nothing of the kind, Mr. Trigger, said Sir Thomas, with an assumption of personal dignity which caused everyone in the room to alter his position in his chair. I understand these things are given by merit. Mr. Trigger smiled, and Mr. Griffinbottom laughed outright. At any rate they ought to be, and in this office I believe they are. Mr. Griffinbottom, who had had the bestowal of some local patronage, laughed again. "'The thing is over now, at any rate,' said Mr. Trigger. "'I saw give and take yesterday,' said Spicer. "'He won't stir a finger now.' "'He never would have stirred a finger,' said Mr. Pyle. "'And if he'd stirred both his fistses, he wouldn't have done a worth of good. "'Give and take, indeed, he be blowed.' There is a species of honesty about Mr. Pyle which almost endeared him to Sir Thomas. "'Something must be settled,' said Trigger. "'I thought you'd got a proposition to make,' said Spicer. "'Well, Sir Thomas,' began Mr. Trigger, as it were, girding his loins for the task before him, "'we think that your seat wouldn't stand the brunt. We've been putting two and two together, and that's what we think.' A very black cloud came over the brow of Sir Thomas Underwood, but at the moment he said nothing. Of course, it can be defended. If you choose to fight the battle, you can defend it. It will cost about fifteen hundred pounds, or perhaps a little more. That is, the two sides, for both will have to be paid. Mr. Trigger paused again, but still Sir Thomas said not a word. Mr. Griffinbottom thinks that he should not be asked to take any part of this cost. Not a shilling, said Mr. Griffinbottom. Well, continued Mr. Trigger, that being the case, of course, we have got to see what will be our best plan of action. I suppose, Sir Thomas, you are not altogether indifferent about the money? By no means, said Sir Thomas. I don't know who is. Money is money all the world over. You may say that, put in Mr. Spicer. Just let me go on for a moment, Mr. Spicer, till I make this thing clear to Sir Thomas. That's how we stand at present. It will cost us, that is to say, you, about fifteen hundred pounds, and we should do no good. I really don't think we should do any good. Here are these judges, and you know that new broom sweep clean. I suppose we may allow that there was a little money spent somewhere. They do say now that a glass of beer would lose a seat. Sir Thomas could not but remember all that he had said to prevent there being even a glass of beer, and the way in which he had been treated by all the party in that matter because he had so endeavoured. But it was useless to refer to all that at the present moment. It seems to me, he said, that if one seat be vacated, both must be vacated. It doesn't follow at all, said Mr. Griffinbottom. Allow me just a moment longer, continued Trigger, who rose from his seat as he came to the real gist of his speech. 
A proposition has been made to us, Sir Thomas, and I am able to say that it is one which may be trusted. Of course, our chief anxiety is for the party. You feel that, Sir Thomas, of course? Sir Thomas would not condescend to make any reply to this. Now the liberals will be content with one seat. If we go on, it will lead to disenfranchising the borough, and we none of us want that. It would be of no satisfaction to you, Sir Thomas, to be the means of robbing the borough of its privilege after all that the borough has done for you. Go on, Mr. Trigger, said Sir Thomas. The liberals only want one seat. If you'll undertake to accept the hundreds, the petition will be withdrawn, and Mr. Westmacott will come forward again. In that case, we shouldn't oppose. Now, Sir Thomas, you know what the borough thinks will be the best course for all of us to pursue. Sir Thomas did know. We may say that he had known for some minutes past. He had perceived what was coming, and various recollections had floated across his mind. He especially remembered that fifty pounds for the poor old women which Mr. Trigger only a week since had recommended that he should give. And he remembered also that he had given it. He recollected the sum which he had already paid for his election expenses, as to which Mr. Trigger had been very careful to get the money before this new proposition was made. He remembered Mr. Pabsby and his check for twenty pounds. He remembered his broken arm, and that fortnight of labor and infinite vexation in the borough. He remembered all his hopes and his girl's triumph, but he remembered also that he had told himself a dozen times since his return that he wished that he might rid himself altogether of Percy Cross and the seat in Parliament. Now a proposition that would have this effect was made to him. "'Well, Sir Thomas, what do you think of it?' asked Mr. Trigger. Sir Thomas required the passing of a few moments that he might think of it, and yet there was a feeling strong at his heart telling him that it behoved him not even to seem to doubt. He was a man not deficient in spirit when roused as he now was roused. He knew that he was being ill-used. From the first moment of his entering Percycross he had felt that the place was not fit for him, that it required a method of canvassing of which he was not only ignorant, but desirous to remain ignorant, that at Percycross he would only be a cat's paw in the hands of other men. He knew that he could not safely get into the same boat with Mr. Griffinbottom, or trust himself to the steering of such a coxswain as Mr. Trigger. He had found that there could be no sympathy between himself and any one of those who constituted his own party in the borough. And yet he had persevered. He had persevered because in such matters it is so difficult to choose the moment in which to recede. He had persevered, and had attained a measure of success. As far as had been possible for him to do so, he had fought his battle with clean hands and now he was member of Parliament for Percycross. Let what end there might come to this petition, even though his seat should be taken from him, he could be subjected to no personal disgrace. He could himself give evidence, the truth of which no judge in the land would doubt, as to the purity of his own intentions, and as to the struggle to be pure 
which he had made. And now they asked him to give way in order that Mr. Griffinbottom might keep his seat. He felt that he and poor Moggs had been fools together. At this moment there came upon him a reflection that such men as he and Moggs were unable to open their mouths in such a burrow as Percycross without having their teeth picked out of their jaws. He remembered well poor Moggs's legend, Moggs, purity, and the rights of labor, and he remembered thinking at the time that neither Moggs nor he should have come to Percycross. And now he was told of all that the borough had done for him, and was requested to show his gratitude by giving up his seat, in order that Griffinbottom might still be a member of Parliament, and that Percycross might not be disenfranchised. Did he feel any gratitude to Percycross or any love to Mr. Griffinbottom? In his heart he desired that Mr. Griffinbottom might be made to retire into private life, and he knew that it would be well that the borough should be disenfranchised. These horrid men that sat around him, how he hated them! He could get rid of them now, now and forever, by acceding to the proposition made to him and he thought that in doing so he could speak a few words which would be very agreeable to him in the speaking. And then all that Mr. Trigger had said about the fifteen hundred pounds had been doubtless true. If he defended his seat, money must be spent, and he did not know how far he might be able to compel Mr. Griffinbottom to share the expense. He was not so rich but what he was bound to think of the money for his children's sake, and he did believe Mr. Trigger when Mr. Trigger told him that the seat could not be saved. Yet he could not bring himself to let these men have their way with him. To have to confess that he had been their tool went so much against the grain with him that anything seemed to him to be preferable to that. The passage across his brain of all these thoughts had not required many seconds, and his guests seemed to acknowledge by their silence that some little space of time should be allowed to him. Mr. Pyle was leaning forward on his stick with his eyes fixed upon Sir Thomas's face. Mr. Spicer was amusing himself with a third glass of sherry. Mr. Grivenbottom had assumed a look of absolute indifference, and was sitting with his eyes fixed upon the ceiling. Mr. Trigger, with a pleasant smile on his face, was leaning back in his chair with his hands in his trousers' pockets. He had done his disagreeable job of work, and upon the whole he thought that he had done it well. "'I shall do nothing of the kind,' said Sir Thomas at last. "'You'll be wrong, Sir Thomas,' said Mr. Trigger. "'He'll disenfranchise the borough,' said Mr. Spicer. "'You'll not be able to keep your seat,' said Mr. Trigger." "'And there'll be all the money to pay,' said Mr. Spicer. "'Sir Thomas don't mind that,' said Mr. Griffinbottom. "'As for paying the money, I do mind it very much,' said Sir Thomas. "'As for disenfranchising the borough, I cannot say that I regard it in the least. "'As to your seat, Mr. Griffinbottom.' "'My seat is quite safe,' said the senior member. "'As to your seat,' which I am well aware must be jeopardized if mine be in jeopardy, it would have been matter of more regret to me 
had I experienced from you any similar sympathy for myself. As it is, it seems that each of us is to do the best he can for himself, and I shall do the best I can for myself. Good morning. What, then, do you mean to do? said Mr. Trigger. On that matter, I shall prefer to converse with my friends. You mean, said Mr. Trigger, that you will put it into other hands? You have made a proposition to me, Mr. Trigger, and I have given you my answer. I have nothing else to say. What steps I may take, I do not even know at present. You will let us hear from you, said Mr. Trigger. I cannot say that I will. This comes of bringing a gentleman learned in the law down into the borough, said Mr. Griffinbottom. Gentlemen, I must ask you to leave me, said Sir Thomas, rising from his chair and ringing the bell. Look here, Sir Thomas Underwood, said Mr. Griffinbottom. This to me is a very important matter. And to me also, said Sir Thomas. I do not know anything about that. Like a good many others, you may like to have a seat in Parliament, and may like to get it without any trouble and without any money. I have sat for Percycross for many years, and have spent a treasure, and have worked myself off my legs. I don't know that I care much for anything except for keeping my place in the house. The house is everything to me, meat and drink, employment and recreation and I can tell you I'm not going to lose my seat if I can help it. You came in for the second chance, Sir Thomas, and a very good second chance it was, if you'd just have allowed others who knew what they were about to manage matters for you. That chance is over now, and according to all rules that ever I heard of in such matters, you ought to surrender. Isn't that so, Mr. Trigger? "'Certainly, Mr. Griffinbottom, according to my ideas,' said Mr. Trigger. "'That's about it,' said Mr. Spicer. Sir Thomas was still standing. Indeed, they were all standing now. "'Mr. Griffinbottom,' he said, "'I have nothing further that I can say at the present moment. "'To the offer made to me by Mr. Trigger, "'I at present positively decline to accede.' I look upon that offer as unfriendly, and can therefore only wish you a good morning. Unfriendly, said Mr. Griffinbottom with a sneer. Goodbye, Sir Thomas, said Mr. Pyle, putting out his hand. Sir Thomas shook hands with Mr. Pyle cordially. It's my opinion that he's right, said Mr. Pyle. I don't like his notions, but I do like his pluck. Goodbye, Sir Thomas. Then Mr. Pyle led the way out of the room, and the others followed him. "'Oh,' said Stem, as soon as he had shut the door behind their backs, "'that's a deputation from Percycross, is it, Sir Thomas? "'You were saying as how you didn't quite approve of the Percycrossians.' To this, however, Sir Thomas vouchsafed no reply. End of chapter 39 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina